Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Cochran. Matt is a Navy veteran and detective in Florida where he investigates violent crimes and property theft. When he isn't cracking cases and busting the bad guys, he is a do-it-yourself investor and prolific investing blogger. Matt has a strong focus on growth-oriented companies with moats. He is currently a lead advisor at Seven Investing. Prior to Seven Investing, he was a writer for The Motley Fool. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks so much for having me, VSG. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So how'd you get your how'd you get started with your interest in investing? Yeah, so I guess like uh, just jumping right into it, I got started I think pretty late in life. You know, uh, you and I are on Twitter a lot. We we mix it up, and and one of the things that impresses me the most, like about like FinTwit, it's like how young some of these people are, and they're learning, and like it just blows me away. And I I, I just I envy them because I wish I had <laughs> an early start like that too. You know, look, I grew up in an awesome home, but it was very blue collar and money, you know, investing money was meant to be spent, you know, and uh, because there wasn't much of it and, and investing was something rich people did. So I never even really thought about it, to be honest with you. I went in the Navy right out of high school. I didn't know how to budget. You know, I, I didn't think I, I don't even know if I knew that was a thing. You know, I think I got out of the Navy like I, I was in for over six years and uh, I don't know if I knew how to write a check, to be honest with you. And I got married and my wife, thankfully, was pushing those kinds of things. So she introduced me to a book by Dave Ramsey. And there's a lot of things now, like I can look back and I'm like, there's a lot of things I don't agree with Ramsey about. However, when you're coming from a place where you don't know anything, from a place where, you know, like budgeting and just having like a savings account for emergencies and just really basic things like that, it was a good starting point for me. You know, we had kids. My my wife left the workforce for a few years as we were having kids to stay at home. And we were kind of scraping by during that time. And when she re-entered the workforce, you know, something in my head was like, we were living on my paycheck. And I was like, we need to, instead of just inflating our lifestyle when she goes back to work, we need to do something smart with this money. And I was on the midnight shift back then. This goes back, this goes back probably 10 years now. And I was up late one night because I was on the midnight shift and I saw this ad for investing in 3D printing stocks. And so and I so I there was this like video that went along with it. It was like a 30 to 45 minute video. And I was completely enthralled. I just thought like it they were calling it the next industrial revolution. And you know, I just bought it hook, line, and sinker. Like I took the little money we had at that point, and thankfully it was little. And I put it in 3D printing stocks. And for a few months, I thought I was a genius. I thought we caught the next uh, industrial revolution. And then it all (laughs) evaporated very, very quickly. And it was uh, pretty horrific. And as we were sitting there and I'm I'm losing our, at that time, our, our life savings, which again was thankfully was really small at that point. Like I remember thinking like, okay, I got to... Find figure one. I, I was kind of liking the idea of investing. I was I was really getting into it. I, I like learning about new things, 
And even though a lot of the stuff I learned about 3D printing might not have turned out to be all right, like I was very intrigued by it. But I realized like, if I don't figure out what I'm doing and I just keep losing money, my wife's not going to let me do this. So I got to figure out what I'm doing. I got to make money on this somehow. And so, you know, I had two big helps with that. One was uh, Peter Lynch, you know, and that was like pure luck. I think I just grabbed some books out of the bookstore and, you know, beating the street and one up on Wall Street. And I, I mean, I, I still think those are some of the greatest investing books, you know, to this day that I've ever read. And then two were like, were the discussion boards on, on Motley Fool back then. And there were some wonderful investors on those discussion boards that really helped me through a lot of things. And I'm talking about like, some of them were very basic questions. Like I remember asking like what free cash flow was and how you figured that out. And then somebody was like, oh, you know, it's operating cash flow minus CapEx, you know? And I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? You know? And somebody had to walk me through a 10 Q for a company we were looking at and like, at literally like walk me through it, you know, online and, you know, you know just some great investors like that. And, and that really just got me going. And I got, you know, I went from asking a lot of annoying questions on those discussion boards to answering a lot of questions on those discussion boards. And, you know, thankfully like Motley Fool gave me a chance to write some articles. And from there it, you know, I was fortunate. It just kind of took off. A few years ago, I joined Seven Investing, but that's kind of uh, my investing uh, journey right there. Very cool. I like the stuff about Dave Ramsey in the beginning. I, I agree that that's a great introductory way to get into managing your finances. I know I had some issues with debt when I was younger in my 20s, yeah. and I used the uh, Dave Ramsey's debt snowball method to, to get out of it, and it was very effective. It doesn't mathematically make sense, but it gives you the behavioral push. Like once you get past a small debt, okay, let's move on to the next big one, and right. then you psychologically build up some wins. And yeah, I agree. He's, he's, great. he's a great way to get started. I disagree with some of his investing advice yeah. like yeah, you, exactly. but- yeah, I, I think he he definitely gets people going in, in the right direction. He's a great starting point. You know, again, yeah, is he the most sophisticated uh, financial guy out there? No, but but when you really have, especially like where I was coming from, I had no good starting point. You know, mm -hmm. it was a it was a great way to just like how to organize money, how to think about money. It really helped me a lot. Yeah, and then that's the stuff that really matters in the long run. Is like if you're, you know, if you're spending less than you make and you're and you're putting that into investments over time good things ought to happen so yeah i, I agree with you there you also mentioned uh, peter lynch so i'm a big fan of peter lynch what what were the big lessons that you took from peter lynch well you know i like how it, it gave me the confidence i think i needed that like one you can an individual investor can beat the market and an individual investor you know you can know what you're doing you don't have to hire someone to manage your money. You don't have to like outsource that from your life. You know, he was like, uh, and often I think we make this a almost like a binary choice. Like do you index or do you buy individual stocks? You know, but it's there, a lot of the times it's, it's either or, right? Like you can use your 401k to max out that and, and you're going to have index funds there. And then, you know, but if you want to like put money aside and invest long-term and, and individual names, like, Peter Lynch kind of gave me that confidence that like, look at all these advantages individual investors have against the big institutions. And, and I think like a lot of times his message gets boiled down to this and it was much, much more. However, the starting point of investing in what you know, you work in an industry, just by working in that industry, you're 
you're, you know, you're going to see trends. You're going to see, you know, maybe it's the software your company's using. Maybe it's like the, you know, a vendor your company starts using. Uh, maybe it's it's your own company, you know, or just uh, your hobbies, you know, how you're, where your wife and daughter shop, you know, like, like a lot of times, like, you know, Peter Lynch wrote those books, I think in the late 80s, early 90s. And his thing was like, look, when you go to the mall, look where your daughter wants to shop the most, you know, or look where your wife wants to shop the most. I think these days it might be like what app, you know, maybe your teens are, are downloading on their phone the most or things like that. But like the, the message that like you're going to have just by your observations, using your own observations in your everyday life, you can start there as a starting point that that can be a really good place to start. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And you're right that that wasn't his whole message. A lot of times people just say, right. buy what you know, but he does advocate doing homework. And I also like how, 100%. yeah, I also like in uh, Beating the Street, he takes you through examples of actual investments that he made and he puts it in very simple language that you can understand. Like he's he says, here's why I'm buying this. It's got this PE. I think this is happening in this industry. And it's not... He does it. He makes it accessible. I'd say that's that's the big thing. Very much so. Very much so. Like uh, I remember, I forget which book, but like one of them, he was talking about Home Depot and like how it was growing. And you know, I, he was just talking about like one of his biggest mistakes was selling too early too, which is like uh you know something I believe in like very much like long term investing. And he talked about Home Depot and how he thought he caught this like huge growth wave, but he sold it in like 1988. You know, and even at the time he was writing the book in the early 90s. You know, it was like it had gone up so much since then. And obviously, looking back now, like you, you could have held that stock forever and been done amazingly well. But just like how, you know, you don't have to be too early to sell and just things like that. I think Peter Lynch just really helped me to like approach investing from a from a good place. Yeah, I totally agree. So high level, how would you sum up your current process? Well, I would say I have two main primary philosophies or like two main like rules that guide me in my investing. One is to like on, on Twitter, we'll say like hashtag never sell, right? Which I think is like, you know, for Twitter, that works for Twitter because Twitter's short and there's not a lot of nuance there and it's provocative. It doesn't mean, actually mean never sell, but I think that's kind of like just basically look, hold for the long term and aspirationally, like the, the aspiration is to never sell. The aspiration is to like, Buy a company that's going to exist for a very, very long time and and hold it for a long time and hopefully never sell that company. Of course, that doesn't mean, though, actually never sell. And then the other one is, is find companies with, with economic moats, right? And, and those two go together because if you don't find a company with a good economic moat, I don't think you, it will last a long time or be a good investment anyway for over a long period of time. So I think those two go together well. But like, those are my two primary like theses that guide me in my investing, economic moats and holding companies for a long time. That makes sense. So for never sell, so you're not a strict adherent to the never sell philosophy. So it seems like you can, You there are circumstances where you do sell. So what are some of those circumstances? Well, <laughs> this is something I need to improve on. And this is definitely the part of my my process, like, I think I still have the most work to do on. However, you know, it, it has helped me tremendously to write, you know, like being able to write about my investments has helped me a lot. And when you write about investments, you kind of like putting down your thoughts on like, what is your thesis for, for this company? Like, you know, what, whatever it is, right. Like pick a company, like we, let's pick alphabet 
and like, okay, it's going to dominate like search for a long time. Why do you think it's going to dominate search? Because of these reasons. And, you know, you take those reasons and like, oh, this will be a lucrative business. And then there's other things too, that can be like almost like a supplemental thesis, like, okay, YouTube, I think that's going to continue to grow. And there's some evidence of economic moats with that itself and maybe with Google cloud, but like the primary thing is always search. And then like, if you start to see reasons why that thesis might be not holding true anymore, I think that's when you really need to seriously consider to sell. I think that selling on valuation is where I need to improve because I would have said three, you know, pre-coded, I would have said like, what you need to do is just like as a working man, right? Like I'm, I'm adding money to my portfolio, you know, on a regular basis. And I'll try to add to the companies that I own, or sometimes I find a new company, but like I'll add to companies that I believe have economic moats that I believe are attractive valuations at the time. However, you know, if, if, if whatever, let's just stick with Google. If Google's expensive at that moment, doesn't mean I'm going to sell it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to not add to it right then, you know, and like revisit it next year. And, you know, next year, if it's sold off or, you know, if the price stays the same, but the earnings continue to grow, maybe it's at a more attractive valuation and I can add to it then. I, I think that mostly worked, but it, what it didn't work was like when you had this like huge bubble, right? Like after COVID. And I think I did not do a good job. I did not do a good job at recognizing that. And I held on to companies that went up an awful, awful lot and have now come down, back down an awful, awful lot. Some of them are still higher than where they were. Some of them are lower, you know, and, and that just depends on the company you're talking about. Some companies I did okay at trimming and, and like taking profits, but not enough. And I didn't... I, you know, I had never been through a bubble like that. You know, I wasn't around for the tech bubble and I, I need to, I want to, you know, I still don't know if I have all my lessons yet. And, but that's something I feel like I can improve on in the future for sure. Yeah. It's one of the hardest questions in investing and it's really difficult to figure out when to sell a stock. Um, valuation is tricky because stocks can, some stocks will stay perpetually pricey for a long period of time. So I understand your your difficulties there. Um, I definitely can relate to that. So moving on to moats. So you mentioned that one of your key criteria is a company with a moat. What are some of the characteristics that you look for in a moat? Well, so like, I think there's many different types of moats and we can talk about that, like network effects, high switching and cost, cost advantages, intangible assets. However, there's two things I think that have helped me to think about a moat, right? Like, so on a very simple level, like a moat is just any economic advantage or, you know, any advantage a company has over another company. So like, if you're, if you're a hot dog stand vendor in a small town and you sign an exclusive long-term contract with city hall to sell food at the only park in the city, you know, your competitive advantages would be your physical location and the contract you hold with the city, right? So, you know, just think of like, that's what I mean by economic mode, a competitive advantage you have over, over similar companies. And those come in many different flavors. But two things I think that can help you think about that is one is just a mental model of like, I'm going to butcher this, this exact quote, but Warren Buffett once said, basically, Again, I'm kind of butchering it here, but to paraphrase, if you give me a billion dollars to create a competitor to Coca-Cola, I couldn't do it. 
Like, right. It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't succeed. And I think that's a really great mental model to think about. Like, Hey, somebody gave me a billion dollars DSG. If somebody gave us a billion dollars, could we create a competitor to Chipotle? And I would say, yeah, I don't know if we're going to unseat Chipotle. You know, I don't know if we're going to outgrow Chipotle, but we're going to create a concept that could, you know, depending where our locations are, like at least cannibalize some of its business and create a decent enough proposition. I think, you know, I don't know anything about the restaurant industry, but I think we could hire someone, you know what I mean? Like with a lot of money, like we could maybe do that. However, you do that with like Google and like, I don't know how much money somebody would have to give us to create a competitor to Google in the search market, right? Like, like I can't even fathom such a number, you know? I, and so I think that's a really great mental model, like where to start, like somebody gave somebody a lot of money, like, could you create a competitor to this business? You know, a reasonable competitor. And then the other thing is a moat attack. And I think there's actually a really good recent example of this, but like, uh, I first heard this concept from, from polling capital. And it's basically this, this theory that, you know, you can't, really know the moat or barrier exists until it is attacked and that attack is repelled. And this is, I'm just quoting the guy from Poland. The bigger and more well-capitalized the attacker, the better I think of capitalism like nature. It's just a brutal place. These attacks are happening all the time. This isn't a concept that has any absolutism, but I do think it is a useful tool. And like, I think like historically, there have been like some really good examples of that. And, but one recent example, if you want to go through it, is uh, I think like Shopify and Amazon. And, you know, just quickly in 2019, you know, Shopify at that time, they were like a, a place where if you're a small or medium sized business and you wanted to sell stuff online, you can go to Shopify and they handle all the, all the back office stuff. They'll, they'll give you the website and make it really easy to use and sell on it. They'll give you like the payment stuff and the shipping and you can handle basically your entire business on their platform. And a lot of even large businesses were using their platforms. And it, it is by all accounts, an incredible platform. But in 2019, they announced, they're like, you know what? We need to get into the logistics business because if you're a seller and you go on Amazon, you know, you can have it at that time, like delivered in two days. And, you know, and that's what we're going to do. And so we're investing like this many billions of dollars over this many years, and we're going to get into the logistics business. And over that time, they bought a company called Deliver, which handles that, a lot of that stuff for like $2 billion. They bought a robotics company to handle like automation in their warehouses. And they were on their way to getting to two-day delivery. However, also in that time, Amazon basically more than doubled its whole entire logistics infrastructure. And now they offer like same day delivery on, on many, many items. They offer, you know, one day delivery, you know, almost like two days delivery is like, is almost slow on Amazon's platform for, for most items. And as an antidote to that, I'll say like, so my teenage son the other day, like he likes to build computers and stuff. He ordered a part for his computer. We ordered it like, you know, before he left for school, he gets home from school I get home from work and he goes, Hey dad, where's my part? Where's my piece? Where, where did it, where is it? I'm like, it's like eight hours later. It didn't come yet, you know? And it was coming the next day, but you know, for, for VSG, for, for, for guys our age, you know, like two day delivery still sounds, I think pretty great. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to work for the next generation and maybe it will for some items. Maybe it won't. I'm not, you know, I don't know, but to cut to the chase in their last conference call, Shopify said, we can't do it. And yeah. we're exiting this business and we're selling it to, you know, we're spinning off some of our stuff to Flexport and we're selling deliver. We're doing this and we're basically, we're just going to partner with people. 
And mm. I think if you want to look at a, I think that's a, you know, it's, it's a great recent example of a moat attack. Shopify was coming in and Shopify is big. I mean, they, they handle, I think like 10% of all e-commerce in North America. So this is a huge competitor. And if Shopify can't do it, there's really not too many people out there that can. So I think that's just like, as an example of a moat attack, I think that's a, a really good recent example. So I look yeah. at those two things, the mental model, can somebody give me enough money to create a competitor? And is there evidence of a moat attack? That's uh, that's a great way to think about it. That's funny about your son with the uh, with the ordering. Yeah. I bet I bet in twenty years it's going to be like, why hasn't a drone dropped this off at my house in thirty minutes? <laughs> that's probably <laughs> right, the next right, level. Right, right. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I I don't know who could possibly unseat Amazon's moat. I mean, the, the infrastructure that they have throughout the country is impossible to recreate at this it's, point. I think just capital wise and real estate wise. It's, mm-hmm. If you're not a Walmart or maybe a Target, I, I just don't know if you can do it. I just don't know if you can do it. Yeah, and I, I don't see how you could do it. And I mean, right now there's an attack on, uh, and I mean, we could. I was going to talk about this later, but we can get into it now on uh, Google. So right now, Microsoft is basically trying to attack Google's moat in search. So how how are you thinking about that? So let me start at just a slightly higher level. And I haven't written about this yet. And when I haven't written about something, it's not well articulated yet. However, I would say like, I think the biggest risk to big tech is is big tech. And by that, I mean like if, if somebody's going to disrupt Google, it'll probably be someone like Microsoft. Like, I don't think it's like going to be a startup. You know, I think gone are the day, I, like, you know, if, if you think back, like Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook in a, in a dorm room, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know, they started Apple in a garage. I think those days are over is what I'm trying to say, you know, and for big tech to be disrupted, I think my theory will is that it will be from another one of their fellow big tech. And I think like one of the ways to like one, the index, obviously, you know, big tech makes up a lot of the current index and as a hedge against itself, like, like I, I've just decided to own like a lot of big tech, <laughs> like I'm, I'm bullish on all of them. I think they'll all be winners, but if one of them loses, so like, let's say go back to like, will Google lose to Microsoft? Like will Bing become the dominant search engine or, you know, just take enough market share away from Alphabet. Like one of the ways I think about that is to like, well, I also have a very large position in Microsoft. So I mean, very large for me. I'm not, they're, they're not over 10% or anything like that, but you know, they're, they're each, my Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, I think those are three of my four largest positions right now. And so one of the ways I think about it is like, you know, you can kind of hedge your bets by diversifying there. Beyond that, I will say, I think Microsoft to disrupt Google has a very long uphill battle, or at least, I mean, I don't know how long it would take, but I just think it's, uh, I would put them at a very heavy, like underdog to upsetting Alphabet. It's not just the technology that Alphabet has and all the data they've collected over the years to make, to continually like make their search engine better, which, which I think is also immense. Like the data they've had collecting searches, like it's an insane stat, but it's something like, like 20% of all, don't quote me on that exact number, but like a, a large percentage, larger than you would think of all daily Google searches are unique searches that have never been search for before. And when you think about the number of searches that have had to happen on Google, that that number just always blows me away. 
And so not only collecting all that data and like improving the results all these years, which is so much more data than Bing has collected so far. It's also distribution. You know, I mean, Alphabet has Android, so they're automatically on Android. They have a contract with Apple, which I think Apple will be, people have talked about this and it's possible Apple could go with someone like Microsoft. It's possible Apple starts their own search engine. However, that would be a big risk for that's a big risk for Alphabet, but it's also a risk for Apple. It's also a risk for Microsoft. You know, Microsoft could pay a lot of money to win that contract with Apple and people could still just download Google search, you know? So I, I think it's, and so I just think like, I want to be patient with my companies and like at the first sign of someone's attacking a moat, I don't think it's the time to sell. Now that, that in some cases that will lose you money. Like in some cases, like, you know, you could see an attack on the horizon and you could say, well, I'm not going to sell right here. And especially, you know, if the stock price goes down 10 to 20%. I'm not going to sell right here because, you know, let's see what happens. And sometimes maybe those mode attacks work and they're successful and you were wrong on how that was going to play out. But I think more times than not, especially if you really believe that a company does have an economic moat, I think it's better to be a little patient there. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, when you think about, that's also the purpose of diversification. Like if you're diversifying among lots of companies with moats, you're going to assume maybe some of them are going to wind up like a Kodak, but hopefully, you know, 60% of them will persist and, and keep their moats for a long period of time. Right. And even Kodak or IBM, you know, they, I mean, they did keep their moats for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Obviously there was a time though to sell and, and that, that you do have to, it's the continual, like, you just have to continue to, like, reevaluate your thesis. And, like, is there evidence that this moat is disappearing? IBM is an interesting one. I was listening to a podcast with Joe Rogan and this physicist named Michio Keiku, and he was talking about how IBM is actually leading the way in quantum computing. So I always thought maybe it would be funny if IBM came back revolutionizing the computer industry again. Wouldn't that be funny? That would be funny. I don't see that happening, but yeah, <laughs> you know, like we'll, we'll see, we'll see. It just seems like a IBM has a great PR team, mm -hmm. like with Watson. Like I would have told you ten years ago, like oh yeah, IBM is going to be on the the leading edge of AI, right? Mm -hmm. well, I mean, Watson won a Jeopardy game. Like how can it not? And yet that technology that all that was based on, you know, wasn't the right one. And it just seems like IBM is they have a great PR team. I just don't know if you know if, if they have what it takes to to continue to succeed, I guess. Yeah, we'll see. And, and back to Google, I mean, I agree with you about their moat. I'm long and full. And I think the big thing people are fighting against is 20 years of ingrained behavior. I mean, for 20 years, everybody Googles things. And I think when you talk about Bing adding AI, it's a lot of inside baseball stuff for people real in the industry. I think if you ask your average person on the street, like, what are you going to use to search something? They're going to say, oh, I'll Google it. You know, and I, I think that's tough to, to break into that. Yeah, I think so too. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So back to your process. So thinking about position sizing and the number of stocks you hold in a portfolio, how do you go about that? Like how many stocks do you hold? How do you think about how to position things? Yeah. So like, I don't have like a, a hard rule about like, okay, I can only own this many companies but i have three of it i have three what i call guidelines as far as portfolio allocation one is like i move slowly 
I'm never in a rush to like build a position anymore. So I just buy a little at a time. And sometimes even that first bite can be quick. Like VSG, if, if you came on my podcast and you like pitched a stock and we talked about, it, I'm like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And I start to do research. Well, look, I'm like you, right? Like I'm, I'm bivocational. And so like, you know, I might not have time to just like, stop everything I'm doing and just dive into that company for the next week. But I, like, you know, I start to read and I start to like it. Like I might take a small position just from that. You know, I might be 50% done with my research or 60% done, but so far I like what I see. Let me just take a small bite here because like it might be a long time till I get to up to hundred percent. And I've talked about how I'm reluctant to sell. I think you should hold for long-term, but for those small first bites, I can be a much quicker to sell them if I see something I don't like. So I start I start small, but if the thesis holds and my confidence grows as I learn, I'll just add over time. And when I say over time, I mean like look, looking in simple terms, like especially like, you know, when my wife and I started, it was like, okay, we're just going to max out our IRAs every single year, you know, me and my wife. And so like, it would be like, okay, I'm going to buy a thousand dollars of this stock this year. And next year rolls around, let me buy another thousand dollars. And if you keep doing that year over year over year, you can buy, you know, that position will grow, you know, over time, especially if you're right, that it's a it's a good company. But while I'm a long-term buy and hold investor, so like I can, you know, I can quickly sell those small positions before completing my research. So that's the first one. I just think of that as time diversification, moving slowly and, and just like taking my time to build a position. And then two, so like I make stocks like just like earn their position. So to become a significant position in my portfolio, and that's, I'll just say that's, probably anything over 5% for me, the stock has to do a lot of that heavy lifting. So this is especially true for my largest positions. Like I'll just, I'll keep buying to a point, but eventually, you know, like positions need to earn their keep. Like I don't, won't just keep averaging down. I won't just keep buying, you know, the stock's going nowhere and continually underperforming. Like, you know, if you want to be, I don't mind buying a stock and I don't mind buying it a few times, but if it wants to be like one of my largest positions, it has to earn its keep. And then three, for my largest positions, those are usually the ones that I believe won't lose a lot of money rather than ones I think could gain the most. I give myself to like trim and add to positions based on valuation. And again, like that's something I'm still trying to work on, but I usually never, I, I really don't sell out of a position entirely due to valuation. And, and I just try to use those three guidelines for my portfolio. I usually have about 30 positions sometimes like when I'm adding these like smaller, more speculative stakes, that number starts to creep up to 40. And around that time is like, uh, I usually go through and try to like trim out the fat and like put that money towards higher conviction ideas, you know, try to get that number down to around 30. But 30 seems to be my sweet spot. You know, I don't have too much problems following 30 companies. And like I said, I just try to add on those, like out of those 30 in new ideas, but out of those 30, like what I think are attractive valuations at that time. Yeah. And that matches the um, academic research. So when you, when you look at that stuff, basically 30 is kind of like the max where you're going to get your risk down to the risk of an index and still have some opportunity to outperform. So that, that makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah. So do you, where do you get your ideas from? Do you use screeners or is it more about just learning about companies A to Z and, and, you know, waiting for a good opportunity? I don't have a good answer for this, or I don't have a standardized process for this. So I'll look at 13 F's for ideas. I'll 
talk to people like you and, and get what you, you know, what, what are your favorite ideas at this time? You know, like I, I've subscribed to your newsletter. So I like say, what does what DSG think is a good value right here? But things Thank like you. that, <laughs> uh, Twitter, you know, is a, I think a, there's a lot of noise on Twitter and, and that's the problem. But if you can tune out the noise, there's also a lot of opportunities to find like some, some uh, learn about new companies and things that I wouldn't have found otherwise. So just like, you know, services, Twitter, 13Fs, listening to podcasts. I mean, like screeners. Uh, yeah, I use screeners, you know, and because again, I need to be convinced of the economic mode, but you can look at certain numbers and metrics and if a company has consistently high on certain metrics or they're consistently growing a lot, that's probably evidence of something and, and can certainly be evidence of an economic mode. So it's something worth investigating. So yeah, I don't really have a standardized process, but like I'll look... I'll look anywhere. You know, I just feel like if you look under the most rocks, you know, that that's one of the ways to win. So I just try to look under a lot of rocks. Yeah, that's what Warren Buffett says. He says, just start learning about companies, reading 10Ks, start with the A's. And uh, over time, you know, that knowledge compounds. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I probably don't read as much as Buffett. <laughs> it's safe to say. But I do, yeah, I just try to like, you know, like I said, like, you know, I have a commute, right? Like, so like, you know, using my time in the car to listen to the podcast is another, you know, one of those ways you can just try to use that time. Yeah, that that's a great way. I love listening to podcasts and walks and in the car. And then uh, another great thing is if you, if you download the earnings call app, that's a great, that's a great yep. way to do things. Like I'll go on a walk and listen to an earnings call that that's helpful. For sure. For sure. So how do you think about valuation? So when you're thinking about the right value to buy a company or sell a company? Like what are some of the criteria that you look for there? Tobias Carlisle asked me this question once. And I, I guess the best I can say is there's no like set answer. Like I don't have, I can't, or there's no magic number, right? Like I can't tell you like, oh, if it's below 20 times earnings, then it's, it's good. Or if it's, you know, and if it's above it's bad or, or anything like that. I, I think it's all relative to growth. I think it's all relative to like margins and re or return on invested capital too. And the more, the more I'm convinced of a moat, the more I'm willing to bend on valuation. I guess that's the best way to say it. And I wish it was more scientific than that. I wish it was more science than art, but like, I just have to be convinced of the moat. And even if I think a company's overvalued, and this is probably where, you know, we differ a little in our processes. So like, let's say I, I you know, pick a company and we'll just start with, we'll just stay with Google since we've used that a lot, but like, or Amazon is another one. Like you could look at Amazon and say like a lot of times, almost all the time, probably just looking at basic metrics, like this, this company's expensive, but if I'm really convinced of the moat and the opportunity, like, so there's some companies like Moody's, which I own. Right. And I think Moody's has like one of the widest economic moats I can possibly perceive. I think the only thing that can disrupt Moody's is an act of the regulatory gods, basically. And, and even then, would be like, I think would be so stupid to disrupt that whole entire market and industry. I hope we never have regulators that do that. But they're not really growing or, you know, it's not really a growth opportunity. You know, they, I mean, they do grow. I'm not saying that, but like, they're not a fast grower by any stretch of the imagination. So I have a smaller position in Moody's, but like, unless the valuation gets very attractive where they had this like new growth opportunity, all of a sudden, like I wouldn't make that too large of a position. But a company like Amazon, like it, it's, you know, I'm also convinced of its moat. I mean, we just talked about its logistics network. I think AWS also has a, a pretty nice moat around it. 
And I think the growth opportunity is there, right? Like I think cloud computing, like AWS, the growth is coming down now, but it's still in double digits. And But I think that's more like a little cyclical, you know, a little macro uncertainty. And I think then the growth for AWS will reaccelerate. E-commerce is still this huge opportunity. They're still somehow still gaining share in e-commerce, you know, in a lot of markets, which is crazy to me when you think about how ubiquitous they are, that they're still gaining share in a lot of places. So when i convinced of a moat and a growth opportunity, I can bend more on valuation. That Again, I wish it was more scientific than that, you know, and I really like your process, how you're very like, you know, you just go through the fundamentals really well. But I don't have a good answer for you except to say like, the more I'm convinced of the growth rate and the more I'm convinced of the moat, the more I'm willing to bend on valuation. And again, how I do it is like, so if I think, so I'm convinced I'm Amazon, like, oh yeah, this has a great moat, this is a great company, but it's really highly valued. I'll buy a little. And then next year rolled around and I'll buy a little more. And next year rolled around and buy a little more. And then maybe next year rolled around and it dipped a lot. So then I'll try to buy more. You know what I mean? But like, I just, I feel like by building positions slowly, I can be a little easier on valuation and just build a position over time and buying it at different value points when I'm convinced mm. of the moat and the long-term opportunity. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, valuation's hard. I mean, there's no set answer that this is the right value for a company. When I was younger, I used to be a lot more strict about this, where now I've been humbled enough where I've seen so many situations where I've been wrong about the valuation that I can well, understand it's a fluid we, situation. Definitely <laughs> all have our weaknesses, you know, and you can take like what I'm saying way too far too, though. So, right, like you can go way too far either way. You can yeah. say, well, just valuation, you can start to say, well, valuations don't matter. I've never said that in my head, but how I acted maybe at the height of the pandemic was kind of like the, almost leaning that way. Like, well, evaluations, they don't matter because just look out 10 years, look out 20 years, it's, it'll be fine, you know? <laughs> Eventually, yes, valuations definitely matter. Yeah, it's, you know, if you go too far one way or the other, I think you, you mess up, you know? And, and so trying to find that happy middle, I think is is one of the big keys to this game. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely, you can take both things too far. Like on one end, you could say, you're degenerate if you pay above book value. And then on the other end, you could say, well, there's no, no price doesn't even matter. And I'll just buy at any price. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. So we can start talking about some individual holdings of yours. So another mutual holding we have is PayPal. So right now, PayPal is at a forward P of about 12. How are you thinking about your PayPal investment? So... We were talking about like <laughs> about mistakes maybe I made during the pandemic. So full disclosure, I have owned PayPal almost since it was spun off from eBay within six months of it being spun off from eBay. So I've been through a lot with this company. And at the height of the pandemic, I knew it was overvalued, but I didn't do anything about it. And so, you know, I think it reached like $300 and now it's down to like, $60. So I really obviously wish I did something different. That being said, I think where it is now at $60 is probably an attractive opportunity. Look, they have a network of 400 million consumer accounts and they have a network of 35 million merchant accounts and connecting those two together, the, the millions of merchants to the hundreds of millions consumers, I think is a very attractive opportunity. Now, look, some of that like especially with their with their like checkout, these are crowded competitive fields. And so that's 
the concern, right? Like, I mean, on the consumer side, you have Apple Pay, you have Google Pay. And I just trying to go back to Peter Lynch, like invest in what you know. I used to use PayPal all the time. If I'm making a purchase on my computer now, I use Google Pay because it's just like I, they, the way they've done it is it's just it's just easier, you know? And so that's something to definitely be careful. That being said, it's Braintree and PPCP, PayPal, I can't remember, but it's like basically like they're, that's the name for their like merchant branded, like point of sale solutions for merchants, right? Those are really sticky positions. Those are really sticky services. That's really hard for a merchant to give up. And like, as far as like, you know, there's a lot of good things you can say about Braintree, like Braintree, their authorization rates are like almost four whole percentage points better than its competitive set within the industry. So basically like, you know, if, if I'm a merchant, you know, and I can use Braintree or a competitor, maybe a competitor sells their, you know, charges me a lesser fee, but with Braintree, like they, they approve 4% more like transactions that that's like a huge win for me as a merchant. There's almost no way, you know, giving up a, like a couple per basis points to Braintree for 400 basis points, better authorization rate. I'm going to go with Braintree every single time. You know, they have some of the largest merchants out there, digital merchants like Airbnb, DoorDash, Live Nation. You know, they have deals with Uber, their availability rate, you know, their CEO likes to brag goes to the five nines, meaning it's available 99.999% of the time. There's a lot of attractive assets that PayPal has. Again, millions of merchants, hundreds of millions of consumers, and connecting those two together can be very attractive. That being said, this has been a poorly managed company, and it wasn't as obvious during the bull market as it is now. And they have made a lot of mistakes. So the CEO has said he will be stepping down by the end of this calendar year. And I think that'll be a very good thing. I think, you know, PayPal still has a great role to play in the digital economy, you know, and, and things continue to go that way. Even when we buy things in person now, you know, more and more, we use our phones and we just, we, you know, or, you know, we use the app to buy the, to order the, you know, if you're going to Chick-fil-A, you know, or the other day we went to Wingstop because they were offering a deal on the app. So I ordered on the app, even though I went in person to like pick up the food. So there's more and more, we use our phones to like make, you know, the, the line, it's very blurry line now we'll cut between what is exactly e-commerce and what exactly is in-store purchases. And I think PayPal has a role to play there. And I like its assets. And I think with a good management, they can, you know, they can do well from here. I think it's cheap. I also wish I had trimmed a lot when it was $300. Yeah, I don't blame you. But I'm I'm in agreement with you about, about the moat. Like, I think if you think like from a macro view, will electronic payments grow? The answer to that, I think is unequivocally yes. And then you think about the competitive situation, I don't necessarily think that it's a zero sum game. Like I don't necessarily think like, you, you know, you mentioned there's an ecosystem and PayPal plays a role. I don't think it necessarily Apple pay is going to completely disrupt PayPal. Like they can exist in the same universe and you can use both applications for different needs. It's kind of how I'm thinking about right. it. And a lot of times, even if you use Apple pay, PayPal's accepted at, I mean, exponentially more merchants mm -hmm. uh, than Apple pay is. It probably ever will be. So just, you know, there's still plenty of use cases as a consumer. 
where you can use PayPal. So, you know, I'm not exactly like you said. I think, you know, things like Apple Pay and Google Pay can cannibalize some of PayPal's business, but it won't be all of it. And the secular tailwinds will hopefully erase that. And thus far, like thus far, when you look at payment volume and number of transactions, those things continue to go up at PayPal. And so as long as you see that, I think you're... I think you're going to be okay. Now, I wish, and one of the things like I don't like about management is like they've never broken down like, okay, the payment volume for PayPal. How much of that is from like consumers? How much of that is from the, the merchant side? Like, I really wish they did a much better job of breaking out those numbers. Hopefully the new management team will do that. But like, I, I still think like, you know, as long as you see payment volume go up, transactions go up, things like that, I, I think you're going to be in good shape from this valuation. Great. And uh, another mutual long we have is Meta. So uh, Meta's been a dramatic stock. We've we've had a <laughs> huge drop. We've had a spectacular rise year to date. Um, right now it's around a forward P of fifteen. Um, how are you thinking about your your Meta investment in that wild roller coaster ride we've been on for the last year? So, uh, okay. So again, I've owned this for since probably twenty fifteen. And it's been a wild ride. I don't know if there's another way to to really say that, you know, and like, depending on when you asked me this question, I could have looked like an idiot or like a genius. Look, I've always said this, like my main thesis for Meta is like, as long as you see users grow and engagement grow, you're going to be okay. And I still hold, and when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking about with the family of apps, right? WhatsApp, Messenger, Facebook, and Instagram. As long as you, those are the two key metrics to, to to pay attention to. So things like Reels come along and, you know, those are right, right now, Facebook, you know, Meta is working on monetizing Reels as well as it does its newsfeed, as well as it does stories. I think it will continue to get better at that, you know, but things like that, I don't worry about too much. I think like going back to mode attack, I think there's some really great encouraging signs to see at Facebook. Snapchat several years ago came at it with stories. Facebook copied it and it was, it was fine. People use that because they're already on their platforms. TikTok came out with short form video, Instagram, Facebook copied it. And you know, that engagement has grown through the roof. So I think there's been a lot of moat attacks on Meta with its family of apps and it has consistently repelled them. doesn't mean like Snapchat or TikTok hasn't been successful, but it's not unseated Facebook. So I think those are the things you can look at and be very encouraged by. Do I agree with all of Zuckerberg's capital allocation decisions? No, no. I really wish, I'm not sure what to think about the whole metaverse thing. I think that's a very, it's very difficult to see how the immense investments it has made there will pay off. However, a lot of the money it has spent in recent years has been on AI, you know, because there's been a lot of like um, privacy, you know, privacy rule changes on like iOS, you know, basically all iPhones. And so they've had to spend a lot of on money on AI to better target ads, right? Because that's their that's their thing, which is a tremendous help to small and medium-sized businesses in this country. Like a lot of businesses live on advertising on social media and, and Facebook's platforms are where they go to. And I think those AI investments are paying off. And I think right now, like I'm still very bullish on Meta. Yeah, I'm I'm on the same page. I'm I'm continuing to hold it. I agree with you that the key metric is the engagement on the family of apps and the number of daily active users they have on there. And um that's what's kept me invested through the wild ride. It's just looking at the, looking at that every quarter and saying, like, this thesis is intact. The average number of daily users is is still going up. So 
yeah, it's helped me psychologically stick with it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So before we wrap up, do you have any uh, departing thoughts for the listeners? No, not really. You know, like anyone's interested in following me, they can find me on Twitter or like you introduced me or on seveninvesting.com. And thanks so much for having me on. It's been yeah, great. Thank, thanks for coming on. It's been, it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.